Hey, Pepin. Yo, yo. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about our past episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we talked about a lot of philosophy in the last 76 episodes. There was a Pepin question, would you kill your family, and of course, consciousness and bees. And you know what I was thinking, is that we should talk about philosophy again. You know, I agree, and maybe this time, we should bring on an expert. We have had on a lot of special guests. I mean, listen to this list. Stephen King, Richard Dawkins... Neil deGrasse Tyson. They were all asked and gave no response. What? Why would he even not give a response Whoa, to Oh, calm down. I, I'm just making a point. No, no, I agree, but it's not worth it because we finally have a mega guest, the host of History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, Peter Adamson. Oh my god, are, are you serious? Absolutely, I'm excited. Oh, me too. Wait, let's get to this. We need to talk. Welcome back. I am your host, Pepin, and here's my co-host, Meter. How you doing, Meter? I'm pretty good, thanks. And today we have a very special guest, professor of philosophy. He has a podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. It is Peter Adamson. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Definitely our pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming on. Can you do us a favor? Tell our listeners who you are and what do you do for a living? Oh my God! You're asking a philosopher who he is. That could take a while. I'll, I'll just I'll just go ahead and interpret that question as if I were a normal human rather than a philosopher. So uh, I am a professor of philosophy at the LMU in Munich. Uh, LMU stands for Ludwig Maximilians Universität, and I used to be at King's College London. I was a professor of philosophy there for twelve years. I moved here a few years ago, and. Uh, I'm a historian of philosophy, so my main areas of interest are ancient and medieval philosophy, and within that I specialize on philosophy in the Islamic world. And a few years ago, uh, to be specific, back in 2010, so this is actually almost exactly seven years ago, which is mind-boggling, I launched this podcast, which as you said is called The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, and the idea is to start at the beginning of philosophy, which I took to be the beginning of Greek philosophy and to go through the whole history of philosophy, covering it in podcast form without leaving anything out, hence without any gaps. And that means several things. So the, the obvious thing is that it means I cover lots of minor figures and movements and ideas that no one's ever heard of. And I try to argue that these are very interesting and worth our attention. But I also have done a lot of um, coverage of non-Western philosophy. So there's a big series within my series about Islamic philosophy, another big series on Indian philosophy, which I did with a co-author, Janardan Ganeri. And next year, I'm going to be doing a series on Africana philosophy with another co-author named Chike Jeffers. I've been a big fan of your podcast for quite some time. I've listened up to some way mid midway through the Islamic philosophy uh, section. And it's pretty awesome. And one thing I really, really like about it is I've listened to various lectures on philosophy and it'll go through the big names like Socrates, Aristotle, and then it might cover some skeptic philosopher. And then it goes just kind of like all around, like hundreds of years forward. And your podcast gives a lot more depth to the philosophy and how things change. 
because it, it seems like these ideas come out of nowhere. But through listening to your podcast, I get more the sense that they it's a more a conversation that's like multi-generational. Like it's these ideas don't come from nowhere. They're in the ether or they're in the conversation. We just weren't aware of it. Yeah, that, thank you. That's exactly the idea. And I, in fact, the reason I'm doing it the way I'm doing it, because obviously I could have thought, I mean, there's not that many philosophy podcasts and there were fewer around when I started. And I could absolutely have done a podcast where I just said, okay, I'm going to start with like Socrates, then Plato, Aristotle, then maybe Plotinus, Augustine, Aquinas, Avicenna, whatever, like just big famous people. But um, I, I wanted to cover the history of philosophy as if I was covering history. And in fact, one of my inspirations was a podcast called The History of Rome, which I listened to in its entirety by this guy named Mike Duncan, who has a really great podcast now called Revolutions. And he covered the history of ancient Rome in something like 160 episodes. So it went through an incredible detail and narrative sequence. And I thought, you know, with a podcast, as opposed to teaching a course or maybe even doing like a radio program or something where you have limited time with a podcast, there's no one telling you how fast to go. So you can kind of go at whatever speed you want. So I decided to go not exactly slowly, but just cover everything rather than jumping from highlight to highlight. Because I think, as you just said, I think you don't understand the highlights until you look at the context where they came from. And also the other thing is that a lot of things are turn out to be real highlights that nobody knows about. Um, like for example, there's just scads of interesting philosophy from the Islamic world that hardly anybody knows about. And um, so part of it is bringing things to people's attention that I think should be considered high points in the history of philosophy. Part of it is um, just trying to fill in the gaps as the motto suggests, without any gaps, right, to show how things developed the way you would if you were telling a normal uh, history. Yeah, the uh, history of Islamic philosophy section, I got really, really interested and really, really confused. I was really surprised how much depth and how much thought there was there, because mm -hmm. it's, it's not something we hear about too, too often. And none of these names I had really heard of, but some of them were really interesting. and. It, so some of them were really confusing. I, I don't know his name, but there's one who had like 12 spheres of God or, I don't know, reality. It was I got really confused by that one. Yeah, some of them are difficult to explain, especially in, that, in this podcast form. So you have these very complicated thinkers, and sometimes you're trying to explain their whole system of thought in 23 minutes, which is pretty much how long my podcasts are, Max. Um, but... You know, I try to focus on what I think people will find most interesting and focus on the things that are most inter most important for the continuous history that I'm trying to tell. Mm -hmm. Another thing I find to be very good about your podcast is there are certain topics in philosophy, such as the Shippathesis, I hope I'm saying that right, where yeah. it's a very important concept to philosophy, but... When I, I listened to like three or four different lecture series from the great courses on philosophy, and they, they covered that stuff, but very briefly. And in your podcast, you cover a lot because people are constantly talking about it. And I would say I understood that topic before I listened to your podcast a little bit. But after your podcast, I really understood it. And it really kind of brought to light the actual issue and the 
the little variants of it, the uh, subtlety of it. Yeah, maybe we should say what it is, right? Yes. So <laughs> the ship of Theseus is this ship that actually existed in ancient Greece where it was like a, a ship that was used in a, in a religious ritual. And so they had to keep it around. And over centuries, they replaced it bit by bit. And then at some point, someone said, hey, actually, there are no original bits left. Like every single piece of the ship, every piece of wood had been replaced with a newer piece of wood. And the question is whether it's still the same ship. And actually, I mean, I think one thing, is, I mean, very, by the way, uh, we don't have to spend this entire conversation with you telling me how brilliant my podcast is. But if you want to, that would be fine with me. <laughs> um, but so thank you. But um, I, I think that actually, to me, the important thing is not even just like getting it into it in enough depth that people understand it. To me, the really exciting thing is that you see the same problems coming up again and again. And I think you understand the problem better when you see it from some other angle, or maybe even you see it arising independently in some other culture. So, for example, this general issue, like what's the relationship between the whole of something and the parts that it's made of and what makes something the same as itself over time. That's a question that arises in ancient Greek philosophy, Islamic philosophy, medieval philosophy, but also Indian philosophy. And so you can actually see some of the same issues arising uh, in this completely other tradition without any mutual influence. And I think that actually that helps you understand it because you're sort of seeing like different perspectives on the same issue. And that's super fascinating because one of our first episodes was actually about that exact thing without it being about that. We talked about uh, consciousness and how if you were able to replace the neurons in your brain with synthetic ones, would you be the same person if you slowly replace them one at a time by the end? Are you the same person? Is it the same consciousness or is it something completely different? So we were talking about the same thing without even knowing it. Yeah, and of course, actually, you don't need to do the science fiction thought experiment that you just suggested because actually you've already done that in your life because none of the cells in your brain are the same as the cells that were there when you were two years old because all the matter in your body gets recycled. I don't know. I've read the statistic once, but it's like, whatever, every seven years. You have you, so you are like the ship of Theseus, actually. And so if you say, well, I'm the same person as long as I have the same body, then actually you're not the same person as the five-year-old version of yourself. So it must be something else. And then philosophers have various suggestions for what it could be. Is that question still being discussed today, or has there been any resolution on that? Uh, no, that that absolutely is a question that's still discussed. It's called the problem of personal identity. Um, if you want to be really fancy, you can call it the problem of diachronic personal identity. So diachronic just means through time. Mm. Um, should I really show off? I can tell you the Greek roots. So dia means through, chronos means time. So di <laughs> I'm being nerdy, sorry. So, but um, So the idea is like what makes someone or something the same thing across time, like um, from this morning to tonight or from the year 2000 to the year 2017, whatever. And uh, philosophers still argue about this, and a lot of famous philosophers have had theories about it. So some of them I already covered, some of them I'll cover in the future. If I'm still the same person, then. <laughs> little philosophy humor there for you. One question I have is, when we're talking about the history of philosophy, are we just talking about the history of philosophers? That's a great question. Um, 
That's that's a, actually a really brilliant question uh, because I guess that sort of uh, intuitively, most people would say, of course, like what else could it be? But actually, I my answer would be no. I, I don't think the history of philosophy is just the history of philosophers. I think the history of philosophy is more like the history of philosophical ideas, which can include lots of things. So one, we've, in a way, we've already talked about, namely the context that produce the ideas. So, for example, um, something that I'm really interested in is the way that religious beliefs in a society produces certain kinds of philosophical views. But you might also think about, for example, political or economic situations. So, obviously, um, if you take something like the French Revolution, philosophical ideas helped the French Revolution happen. And once the French Revolution did happen and you had the reign of terror, philosophers looked at that and, th and thought, oh, that was bad. And it <laughs> affected their political theories, right? So you have, say, Edmund Burke, who's a famous thinker in the history of conservatism. He is reacting against the um, French Revolution. And this is kind of obvious, but it just goes to show you that the historian of philosophy needs to think about something other than just philosophical works. They need to think about what's happening in the context in which those works were written. So that's one thing. But another thing is that a lot of authors who we don't usually think of as philosophers, so now I'm just talking about texts and not the wider historical circumstances, a lot of texts that weren't written by philosophers are, I think, important for the history of philosophy and in at least two ways. So one is that they might reflect on philosophy in some way like they might show you how philosophy is being received in the wider culture and i think the historian of philosophy should know about that and another example would be that um, implicit philosophical ideas that are kind of percolating through the society may be expressed in works that aren't really philosophical works or aren't primarily philosophical works so let me give you an example which illustrates both I recently wrote a script about Geoffrey Chaucer for my podcast. So the author of the Canterbury Tales, right? He lived at the end of the 14th century. Mm. He's this very important medieval poet who wrote in English. And he, first of all, he knew something about uh, basically scholastic philosophy as it was being uh, um, pursued in the medieval university. And he talks about it and even makes fun of it in the Canterbury Tales. There's a, actually one of the tales in the Canterbury Tales is called the Clerk's Tale. And clerk, which is like the same as the word cleric, um, is means like a scholar for him. And so he's basically making fun of these uh, like well-educated philosophers that hang around at the university. And so it shows you something about how the wider society sees philosophy, as I said. He also talks about specific philosophical issues. For example, like if God knows the future, does that mean everything we do is already predetermined? He talks about that in several of his works. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that he has a lot to say that is in intrinsically of philosophical interest, even though I guess no one would call Canterbury Tales a philosophical work. So for example, I'm now working on another script, which is about um, ideas about sex and gender in the Middle Ages. And one of the sources I'm using is Geoffrey Chaucer because there's this amazing speech by a character called the Wife of Bath who basically um, 
like proclaims her freedom as a sexual agent and starts refuting all of these uh, uh, misogynist ideas that were floating around in Geoffrey Chaucer's time. And nobody's really sure whether Chaucer was like making fun of this or whether he was on the wife of Bath's side or what, like it's very ambiguous what his position is, but it's a fascinating text. And I think if you're interested in, you know, uh, a philosophical issue like the relationship between men and women, or like, what is it, what does it mean to be a woman in relation to being a man? What role does sexuality play in life? That kind of thing. Then actually Chaucer is really a much richer source than any scholastic medieval philosophical work. I never really thought about it like that either. That like the history of philosophy isn't just the history of, it isn't just telling about the people who were thinking about philosophy and influenced philosophy, but about everybody around that philosophy and how that shaped the popular culture and how that shaped people's lives and future events and future philosophy as it were. Yeah. And of course, I mean, if you start taking this really seriously, you could really begin to wonder, well, where is this going to stop? Right? Like, do I have to start talking about archaeology as a way of doing the history of philosophy? And it turns out the answer is yes, because um, the, f the first thing we're going to talk about when we do the Africana philosophy series, which starts next year, um, or maybe this year, depending on when people hear this, but it starts in 2018. Um, it, we're, we're, so it's about philosophy from Africa and in the Af African diaspora, right? And one of the things that my co-author Chike suggested talking about, and we've already written the script about this, is the idea that basically all humans everywhere ever have done philosophy. So like it's something sort of intrinsic to being a human being that you think abstract thoughts about the meaning of life and causation and nature and so on. And so to sort of test this, we talk about theories um, that have been put forward about African prehistoric cave paintings and whether you can extract some kind of philosophical or religious implied ideas from these um, cave paintings, right? And obviously that's not a philosophical text. Um, and that's, I mean, maybe that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty extreme example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, but I, I certainly don't think it's something we should rule out. So in, in a way I would want to say that actually the historian of philosophy should be open to considering almost anything relevant to what he or she is doing. Obviously, pragmatically speaking, you have to like get on with it and get on to David Hume and Immanuel Kant at some point. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, what, one of the things that I, I mean, one of the things I've been trying to do anyway in the podcast is express this in concrete, um, detail that that would be a way of doing the history of philosophy. In a, in a way, would you say that these texts like Chaucer aren't making explicit philosophical arguments, but they're more acted out, maybe? Like, it's more metaphorical, and you can abstract the metaphor from it. Like, Yeah, so, yeah, it's implicit, right? Um, I mean, actually, with Chaucer, there's both, right? Because, like I said, he's aware of contemporary philosophical debates as well. So sometimes he alludes to them explicitly as well. But actually, I think the more interesting thing he does is reflect on a philosophical topic, but maybe in a way that a scholastic philosopher couldn't. So like Thomas Aquinas or William of Ockham or someone like that, the, just the way they write, the way they think, 
doesn't, for example, give them the ability to dramatically present a philosophically interesting situation and then show you how different characters react to that situation. Uh, whereas that's what Chaucer does all the time. So actually, I think that uh, literary works, great literary works, like by Chaucer, by Shakespeare, by Jane Austen, they can actually be very fruitful uh, texts from the point of view of the philosopher or the historian of philosophy. Yeah, it reminds me, I've heard that uh, in Russia, that uh, during the during the communists, uh, during the USSR and the the gulags and everything, all the oppression, that all philosophy was going to novels, particularly because novels weren't being explicit with their uh, with their claims, particularly. So you had a lot of great Russian novels, which made pretty good uh, philosophical claims. I'm trying to think of some names, they're very famous names. Well, actually, I mean, I think that what that's true about Russian philosophy generally. So it's not even only from the Soviet period, but even earlier. So if you think back to 19th century figures like Dostoevsky, um, so Dostoevsky, I think a lot of people would say he's a great philosopher, but he didn't write philosophical treatises, as far as I know. He wrote novels, right, or sh or short stories. Um, so like War and Peace is you know, it's probably lots of things, but one of the things it is, is a work of philosophical reflection. And actually, I, I, something else that I guess I think is that people get too hung up on the question of who is a philosopher and what is a philosophical text. So the, another area where this comes up a lot is people say, oh, that's not philosophy, that's theology, or that's religion. So they say, well, Buddhism isn't really philosophy, it's religion. Or they say, Thomas Aquinas is a theologian. He's not a philosopher. It happens in the Islamic world too, because there are these theologians, as you might remember from the podcast, there are these theologians called Mutakalimun, who, in my opinion, are doing a lot of philosophy, but some people refuse to consider them as part of the history of philosophy because they say, well, you can't be a theologian and a philosopher. It's, you've got to be one or the other, right? And actually, I, I just think that we should relax about that and, and, my attitude is basically try to be as open as you can. And if you're in doubt as to whether something might be interesting and important, just pay attention to it and cover it because why not? Right. I mean, the worst you're going to do is cover something that's interesting, but irrelevant. Whereas the, the other threat I think is worse, which is that you skip over something that we could really learn from as philosophers. Mm -hmm. And with philosophy kind of being embedded in, say, popular culture as Ch such as Chaucer in the past, you feel, or would you say it's embedded in popular culture today or various works you see you know, being released today? Yeah, actually, an interesting fact about philosophy is that, um, I mean, if you're a historian of philosophy, sometimes you're put under pressure to sort of justify what you're doing. Like, why aren't you doing real philosophy? Why are you doing history? Are you just a kind of antiquarian who's sort of like doing stamp collecting, basically? We're like just telling us, telling people what these old, usually dead people thought, um, usually men, although not always, as I try to highlight in my podcast as well. Um, but actually, you know, if you ask a sort of normal person on the street, to give an example of what philosophy is, they won't say, they won't name a, a living philosopher, right? Like, mm -hmm. can you, can either of you even name me a living philosopher other than me? Noam Chomsky? 
Okay, very good. Yes, yes, he's a linguist and philosopher and political thinker. Okay, so you just ruined my point. Thank you very much. (laughs) But but can you name me ten living philosophers? Uh, Could maybe name you five, five or six. Okay, that's pretty good. But I bet. Let's put it this way. I bet. Okay, you sound like you're unusually well informed. (laughs) But I bet. I bet you that you could. For the record, I can't name any. Good. Thank you very much. And 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 I bet that either of you could name lots more historical figures in philosophy than living contemporary philosophers, right? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you could presumably either of you could reel off names like Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, without even thinking about it. And most people could. I mean, most educated people, so to speak. Um, so actually, I think that in a way, the historian should be less defensive about this and should say, well, actually, I'm the one who does what people mostly think philosophy is, namely studying the ideas of, well, usually great thinkers for reasons I've been explaining this whole time. I don't think you have to focus only on the great thinkers to be doing something worthwhile. But to me, doing history of philosophy is just a, a way of doing philosophy because you're trying to understand these ideas from the inside out, um, thinking about possible objections to them uh, and so on. And that to me is just as much philosophy as what contemporary philosophers do, which of course is also valuable and interesting to me. But I don't think that the historian of philosophy is like worse off. So, so anyway, the reason that's all supposed to be an answer to your question is that the way that philosophy percolates through general culture tends to be in the form of like little snatches of information about historical figures. So like if you talk about something like um, being a platonic friend, right? Or most people know that Descartes said, I think therefore I am. Or people might know something about, something vague about Kant believing that you should treat other people the way you want them to treat you or something like that. Um, and although that's not very much, at least it keeps philosophy kind of present in people's mind and gives them an idea what it might be about. Yeah, you never step through the same river twice. Yeah, Heraclitus is another, is another good example. Like lots of people, most people even have heard of that, but they don't necessarily know what the hell he meant. Actually, I don't know what the hell he meant, but at least I have some suggestions. <laughs> Do you see kind of philosophy in meme culture on Facebook? Because I feel like I do to some degree. Like, uh, I see some stoicism on there. I see some... Oh, crap. I can't remember what it's called. What's the opposite of stoicism? Not the opposite, but the... Epicureanism? Epicureanism. Is that the self-indulgent, self-indulgent one? That's the reputation, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, they're, they were hedonists. So they thought that yeah. they, they thought that pleasure is the good, or that so in other words, happiness is the life of pleasure. It turns out that what they mean by that is not what you might expect. So they don't mean like living a life of debauchery with lots of great food and sex. They mean a life that doesn't include pain or includes as little pain as possible. And because Epicurus, the founder of Epicureanism, thought that if you weren't in any pain at all and you weren't suffering in any way mentally or physically, that would already be the highest pleasure you could have. So his advice is basically, well, keep your life very moderate because for example, if you eat a lot of food, you'll get used to it. And then if the food stops coming, you'll be really suffering and you don't, and that would be worse. So it's better to just like get yourself used to having a very modest diet. So he's that kind of hedonist. 
but anyway, you're right. So especially stoicism, I think is big on the internet. It's a lot of people who like try to live like stoics. They get together and discuss stoicism. They have discussion groups online and so on. Yeah, stoicism's pretty big. Uh, there is like a lot of hints, I think, with kind of uh, Aristotelianism versus Platonism in kind of weird ways. Like people kind of claim to know things just because they know or it's revealed. And then there's the other group who are maybe more empiricists, but they say, I need evidence or I need uh, to like see it for myself. I think there's right. two different ways. Yeah, something else that's happened just in the last year or so is um, in the States, there's been a lot of interest in Plato's political philosophy because he says, I mean, there's this famous part of his most important work, The Republic, where he describes this tyrannical personality type who is obsessed with power and pleasure, like in the more traditional hedonistic sense. And he explains that democratic societies can be corrupted and captured by being dominated by this tyrannical, um, sort of fearsome, um, self-indulgent monster. And a lot of people in the States have said, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and so you've seen all these articles online saying, oh, Plato's Republic tells us all about Trump. And like, uh, you know, obviously... Some people like Trump, some people don't, but it's at least brought uh, Plato into the public discourse more than it had, he had been in the, in the previous years, especially this particular aspect of Plato. When you study the history of philosophy, is it hard to kind of uh, take a step back from your own philosophy, or is it more you just kind of get into it and like dissecting the nuance? Actually, I, I guess that um, I'm unusual in that respect because I always... This might sound a little bit strange, but I've always taken the attitude that it's not, I mean, who cares what I think, right? Like I'm just some guy, right? And I mean, I have some philosophical beliefs and intuitions, right? So like I have kind of preferences about the free will problem or like, you know, I could probably tell you what I think of the right answer to the ship of Theseus problem is or stuff like that. But uh, I mean, since that's not really how I got into it, I, I've always been much more of a historian of philosophy than a philosopher. If that, although, as I said, I don't really believe in that distinction, but maybe I should say history of philosophy is the way that I like to do philosophy. And in fact, I enjoy working on thinkers even more when their views at first seem very outlandish, because then I'm really curious, okay, why would they have thought that? That's really strange. And these people were pretty smart, so they must have had good reasons. Let me see if I can try to understand their reasons. So actually, I have very little, at least, I mean, as far as I am aware, I don't have much trouble setting aside my own philosophical beliefs. I guess what I'm much more kind of bound by is my philosophical taste. So I kind of, you know, when I'm trying to decide what to cover in the podcast and also within each author I'm covering... I gravitate towards certain issues because they just strike me as interesting. And so this is actually one reason I have interviews in my own podcast that I want to give people another perspective and let them hear from someone who might have different kind of set of priorities philosophically than I have. But as far as actual philosophical convictions, uh, 
to the extent that I have any, I don't think they influence my coverage of the history that much. And would you say that's, it sounds more like a uh, just natural kind of thing for you? You didn't have to work on that. This was more your personality. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, to be honest, I don't, it's, it's also not really, in a way, I don't really think philosophy is about believing certain things or defending certain doctrines as opposed to others. I think what's, if you're a good philosopher, usually what that means is that you're extremely good at coming up with arguments for a variety of positions on a variety of topics. And you might actually, if you're a good philosopher, you might be able to come up with very nuanced and clever arguments on both sides of an issue, right? Which sounds a little bit like when Plato accuses the sophists of, of teaching people to argue on both sides of every topic, like a lawyer could. Um, and of course, many, many philosophers, maybe even most, they use this ability to argue for some thesis that they're trying to defend. But actually, um, since, since this maybe because I'm a historian more, I'm what I, I guess I see philosophy more as like the exploration of various reasons for and against believing certain things and what you actually believe in the end, like what, which doctrines you kind of put a tick next to like i believe that god exists i believe i do have free will i believe that uh a cause must render its effect necessary whatever it is um i mean anyone can believe something like that the the interesting thing is what's the argument that led you there and often the argument that would have led you to the other conclusion is going to be just as interesting and so i'm sort of in favor of exploring all the arguments on every side of every issue and like sort of presenting them to the reader or the listener. And um, then I think you understand the issue. Like sort of like I was saying before, when you brought up the ship of Theseus, and I said that I think we understand it better when we see it come up, coming up over and over in different contexts. And then when you see different people defending different solutions for different reasons with connections to other philosophical theories they have, I think then you really understand it. If you just have like someone come along and say, say, I think God exists and here's a three line argument for it. I mean, that's a good start, but that's not going to be a deep understanding of the issue. Yeah, yeah, agreed. There's definitely a lot of things that can relate to you with that because like certain things on the internet, like uh, that I, I find kind of strange, like uh, other kin, if you ever heard of that. What's that? People who identify as dragons, essentially. They, they, it, it's, it's a real thing. But I, it's, I find it more interesting why they believe this and their arguments for it more than their actual belief in a way. Like, it, it's, their belief is interesting that they are the descent of a dragon or an elf, but the arguments and ideas that go into it I find to be more fascinating. Like, why did they believe this, not just that they believe it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess there that they believe it is already pretty astonishing, <laughs> and you really want to know why they believe. Like, these are people who are like really rooting for what's her name on Game of Thrones, I guess, right? <laughs> or uh, flat earthers, uh, people who believe yeah. in a flat Earth theory. I, I find them really interesting. Yeah, or actually, to take a more serious example, people who deny that uh, global warming or climate change is caused by humans. Mm. So, okay, you have this belief, 
which is like deeply false and is and flies in the face of massive amounts of evidence. Isn't it interesting that you think that? Like, why would you think that? That's that's strange. And so you want to know what their thought process is. You maybe you suspect that their thought process wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. But um, again, you know, just just saying you believe something, that's almost never the interesting thing. The interesting thing is, well, why do you believe that? Like, what's motivating you? Um, what are the arguments you can present? For example, do you just not believe in scientific inquiry? Do you think that somehow all of science is some kind of um, is is some kind of uh, like uh, trick that's being put over on us by the intellectual classes? And so you can get like into very into very deep kind of background here on why someone might believe something like that. So it's not only things that. Um, that don't have any effect on the rest of society. It can include things that have very big effect on the rest of society. Mm, true, true. To get off topic a little bit, uh, it's a little random, but I remember hearing on the podcast that St. Augustine actually kind of came up with the famous line, I mean, not quite the famous line, but something like it, the concept of, I think, therefore I am, like way before Descartes did. Is that yeah. actually true? Yes, that is true. Uh, so here you have to know that in, in antiquity, there was a group of philosophers called skeptics. Um, they were associated with Plato's academy. And so they were often called the academics and, and Augustine wrote a text called against the academics, which is basically a refutation of skepticism. And one of the things he says is, well, here's something I can't doubt. I can't doubt that I exist because I have to be existing in order to doubt anything, right? So you might say that, I mean, if he formulated it in the way that Descartes did, he would say, I doubt, therefore I am, right? Or, but a better way to put it is, I cannot doubt that I exist because I have to exist in order to doubt at all. That's his argument. And uh, I suppose it's widely accepted by historians that Descartes was influenced by Augustine when he came up with the cogito. The cogito means I think in Latin. So that's what we usually call the I think, therefore I am argument. Um, it has to be said that Augustine doesn't make it, make it nearly as central to his uh, whole philosophical project as Descartes does. Because what Descartes does is he, he, set, he deliberately sets out to doubt everything. So actually he's more like the skeptic at first, which Augustine doesn't do. And then Descartes says, well, am I left with anything at all that I cannot doubt? And then he says, oh, here's something I cannot doubt. I cannot doubt that I exist because for me, for me even to think I must exist, I think, therefore I am, right? And then he builds on top of that and tries to build back up to all of his sort of common sense knowledge. So the whole method is much more systematic and very different from Augustine, but at least that little chunk of Descartes does definitely have a very strong uh, kind of premonition in Augustine. That's true. Mm-hmm. So it may have been that St. Augustine didn't make such a big deal out of it, which is why it didn't pick up as much steam. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, Descartes could hardly make a more big deal out of it. It's like <laughs> <laughs> the, the move that gets him out of radical skepticism. So both the fact that he introduces radical skepticism as a method starting off as a philosopher and then the fact that he uses the i think therefore i am argument to get out of it Mm. that puts it like front and center in his philosophy 
Whereas in Augustine, it's just one of the gajillions of things he says in his various works. I mean, he, he wrote a lot. There's actually a story from the medieval world that there was like a, maybe a bookshelf or a chest with all of Augustine's works collected. And there was a little sign that said, anyone who says that he's read all of these is a liar (laughs) because he wrote so much. It, that kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier. Um, in that you were saying that the, what surrounds philosophy is just as important, uh, to the Mm -hmm. history of philosophy as the philosophy itself. So maybe the fact that, um, you, you had the area was ripe for, I think therefore I am to become a big thing when Descartes said it versus when St. Augustine said it. Yeah. And also the kind of skepticism involved is different. And I think that makes a big difference. So Augustine is debating with skeptics Mm. who just refuse to believe anything. So they sort of say, well, whatever you ask me to believe, I could come up with an argument that's just as good for the other, for the other option Mm -hmm. for not believing it. And Augustine's trying to show that that's not true. Whereas Descartes doing something very different. He's saying, I will doubt anything I'm not certain of. Mm-hmm. It's totally a different kind of skepticism, really. So he pitched the same concept hundreds of years later with a different spin, and it had firm grasp because he was pitching in a way that people could understand it better. Yeah, or maybe because he was responding to a different uh, challenge, mm. actually. And so again, that would be a nice example of why it's good to do this history of philosophy without any gaps again, because if you do famous people, just famous people, so let's say you do Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, he's a natural next person, second century AD, second to third century AD. Um, no, sorry, third to fourth century AD. Um, so, okay, you've gotten to Augustine, but you just skipped over the skeptics who are the people he's actually responding to. Right, right. So, you're obviously not going to understand what Augustine's doing if he's not in that work. For sure. I, I know a while ago on our podcast, we were talking about an old philosopher who got hit on the head with an egg and died. Is this something you've, <laughs> you've heard of? No, but I, sh- I guess I should watch out. <laughs> <laughs> like around Easter, especially. Uh, and an I'm, egg. Yeah. And, fr- and since then, I have done some research. I can't find anything that backs that up. The only thing Mm -hmm. that I could find about really weird ways philosophers died was that one guy who buried himself in feces in order to extract the toxins from his body. Are you familiar with that at all? Heraclitus. Yeah, Heraclitus. Heraclitus. Because he thought that... um, So he he thought that fire was very important, right? And that the soul was made of fire. And so when he... There's a story that when he was ill, he buried himself in dung to keep warm. That's actually, it's actually not about removing toxins. It's about staying warm. Oh. Um, there's an, also a good legend about Aristotle that he died by committing suicide because he was studying the tides and he couldn't figure them out. And out of despair, he just threw himself into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually a lot of good stories about philosophers killing themselves. Another one is um, Empedocles, another pre-Socratic philosopher like Heraclitus, supposedly threw himself into a volcano. <laughs> what? So, why would anybody go out in style that's how i want to go throw myself into a volcano actually if i can find a volcano inside a volcano that's what i want (laughs) that's pretty much how Gollum died now that you say that he threw he got sort of threw himself into a volcano inside a volcano well now i have a role model 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this has been an, a great podcast, Peter. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Your podcast is the history of philosophy without any gaps. We highly recommend it. I know Nate is an absolutely huge fan. He has been so excited to talk to you here today. Where can people find you? Where 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 would you suggest? So it has a website, which is www.historyofphilosophy.net. But um, actually, you can find it just by literally Googling the phrase history of philosophy, and it will pop up as oh, one wow. of the first hits. Um, and the other thing that's maybe worth mentioning is that uh, I revise the scripts and sometimes add material, and then they come out as books. So there's a book series that has the same name, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, which is published by Oxford University Press. So if you, uh, I guess people listening to this must like podcasts, but if you only like this podcast that you're listening to and don't want to listen to mine, then um, you can still read the books. The books have very fancy covers. They do. Yeah, that's right. They do a good job with the covers. I can't take any credit for that. You mentioned a couple of future projects. Could you touch on those again real quick? Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, well, what I do these days, ever since I started doing the India episodes, I have this uh, kind of rhythm where I release episodes about Western and non-Western philosophy in alternating weeks. So for the last couple of years, I've been covering medieval Christian, like like philosophy in medieval Europe, basically. Um so people like Aquinas, Occam, Scotus, Abelard, um, Hildegard Bingen. Um, and so that will come out once in one week, and then the next week will be India. And pretty soon I'm going to finish both the medieval series and the India series that I'm doing with Janard and Ganeri will also end. So the medieval, the, the medieval series after it ends, within Western philosophy, I'm going to move on to Byzantine philosophy, which is basically philosophy in the eastern part of the Roman Empire where they kept speaking Greek and survived until they were sacked by the Ottomans. Um, so I'm going to do that. That's probably about 15 episodes. And then I'll be moving on to Renaissance philosophy. Um, and then, you know, keep going. <laughs> uh, and so that's what hap was happening in the Western Strand. And in the Eastern Strand, like I said, I'm going to be doing Africana philosophy with G.K. Jeffers. And I'm hoping that I will do Chinese philosophy after that, maybe with a different co-author. Um, so, and one other thing that's maybe worth pointing out about this is that these have t two different RSS feeds. Okay. So if you want to subscribe, like on iTunes or something, you have to subscribe to both podcasts. So there's sort of classic history of philosophy, and then there's history of philosophy in India. These are different feeds. Okay. And now... Uh so Peter, obviously you're, you're extremely smart and very, very learned, <laughs> you know, you know what you're talking about. Um, and that's an, that's an outstanding thing, but it can be kind of intimidating for, for some people who maybe aren't as learned or, or would feel that maybe what you're talking about is going to go over their head. Do you think that what you do is accessible to, to everybody who has interest in philosophy? Yeah, I hope so. That's certainly the aim. I mean, and I know that, um, like I've had people get in touch with me who were high school students who said that they were listening to the podcast and it was helping them like write an essay for school about Plato or something. Yeah. Um, I, I, but on the other hand, I know that there are philosophy professors who listen to it. Right. So, I mean, what I try to do is, I mean, I always just assume, you know, nothing mm -hmm. in advance, except maybe you might, I might assume you've listened to the previous podcast but I never assume you know anything about the history, the history of philosophy or the 
the historical circumstances in general. And I also try to keep it kind of light. So it's, you know, there's jokes and, you know, it moves along pretty breezily. But on the other hand, because I'm doing it in such detail, I still try to get pretty deep into what's going on. So it's supposed to be kind of like a mix of detailed and popular. Because I think, actually, that's to me an important thing about the project is I think that people assume that if you present an academic subject like philosophy to a popular or broad audience, that you have to really dumb it down and simplify a lot and maybe misrepresent it to make it comprehensible. And I just don't think that's true. I think you can explain anything you want to anybody you want, as long as you're clear and patient and maybe keep it amusing or entertaining at the same time. So that's what I aim to do. I mean, whether I actually manage to do that all the time is another matter, but that's definitely the goal. <laughs> well, being completely transparent, I myself haven't listened to your pro to your podcast. Um, I've listened to Yet. a few other philosophy podcasts, but not yours. Um, so that makes me feel really good and excited at this opportunity because now I'm definitely going to, knowing right. that you you start assuming that I know nothing, which um, to, to be fair, I don't as far as philosophy goes. And then <laughs> you build on that from there. So I really like that. Um, and I appreciate all the work you've put out, uh, to make that accessible to me. Well, that would be great. I I'd certainly encourage you to listen to it. Is there anything else you would like to leave the listeners with? Uh, just that everyone should watch Buster Keaton's silent films. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board with you because they're brilliant mm -hmm. and also that I, maybe we should just um, pause to reflect on the noble giraffe yes, and yes. her glories i was just trying to figure out a way to get the giraffe into this this conversation uh, there's never you never need an excuse oh, yeah. you just say giraffes <laughs> they're so great <laughs> oh yes giant giraffes <laughs> is giraffes a euphemism for something <laughs> Because <laughs> I think I like where this is going. I'm not descended from dragons. I'm descended from giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Well, this is absolutely outstanding. We appreciate you, Peter. Thank you so much for being on. We'd love to have you, you back on again. Um, maybe talk about the future of philosophy. Um, that that to me would be really fascinating. Yeah, of course, I know a lot less about that <laughs> <laughs> by definition. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you got it. Thank you so much. Want to get in touch with us? Well, we're on Twitter at WNTT1. Or you can get a hold of us at Facebook.com slash We Need to Talk Show. You know, you can suggest an episode, a topic, guess, whatever you want to do. Also, if you really love us, we have a Patreon. You can donate to us there. Until next time. <laughs>